Hello, everyone, and welcome back to NATO's Road to Madrid, the CSIS podcast breaking down the main issues on the Alliance agenda. I'm Max Bergman, the director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at CSIS. Now that the historic summit in Madrid has taken place, these final episodes will take stock of its outcomes. To help do that, I sat down this week with a key figure at the summit, the UK permanent representative to NATO, Ambassador David Corey. Ambassador Corey is one of the United Kingdom's most experienced diplomats. Before his current role, he was the Prime Minister's advisor on international affairs and the UK Deputy National Security Advisor. Before that, he was the British ambassador to Israel for four years. The UK has been a leader in supporting Ukraine and driving NATO's adaptation, so it was a tremendous opportunity to speak with him. In the interview, we talked about his experience at the summit and his most important takeaways on a handful of topics from NATO's assistance to Ukraine to the membership applications of Sweden and Finland. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Ambassador Corey, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, My pleasure. Delighted to be here. Thank you. So I want to dive in to talk about the NATO summit. Uh, President Biden described the NATO summit in Madrid as history making. Uh, And it came really at a crucial time in the history of the alliance with the land war in Europe uh, and endorsed a new strategic concept for the alliance, the the eighth since the Washington Treaty was signed in 1949. Uh, But I want to start with with your broad takeaways from NATO's uh, recent summit in Madrid, and what was UK's perspective on this? On this, what what President Biden called the history-making summit? Yeah, thanks. We thought uh, that Madrid was uh, a big success, and that it was a historic moment for uh, for NATO. We'd set a very high bar for it. We went into the summit very ambitious. We wanted an outcome from Madrid that reflected the gravity of challenge to Euro-Atlantic security that Putin's illegal and brutal invasion of Ukraine uh, had posed. And we broadly wanted four uh, big outcomes from Madrid, to see a NATO that was more united and stronger than ever, that was accelerating its adaptation as it prepares for an increasingly complex uh, and challenging world, a NATO that was doing more to support uh, partner countries, particularly in uh, Eastern Europe. And fourthly, uh, a NATO that was increasingly global in its outlook. And we think that the summit hit the mark on all four of those. And that uh, this really was, I mean, diplomats always say this, but we think this really was a historic moment for the alliance. And maybe I'll start with the last of the four that you mentioned this, you mentioned this being a very global summit, and we had leaders from Asia coming to the NATO summit, from Australia, from Japan. Uh, what was your uh, reaction or take on, on, on their participation? Well, it, it was really important that they were there for the first time, partly for the substance of the discussion that we were able to have at, the, at Madrid, but also, I think, because of the symbolism. And we've been very clear that as NATO prepares for this world, which is uh, increasingly defined by systemic competition, uh, a lot of instability around the the global system, growing challenges, including as recognized in the strategic concept from China, that it's more and more important for NATO to do more with its partners around the world. So the presence of the AP4, as we call them, uh, Japan, Australia, uh, New Zealand, and Republic of Korea, That was an important moment for us to discuss this full range of challenges that we are seeing, but also to get the Alliance thinking about what more we can do together with our partners uh, around the world. And it's not that we want NATO to expand into other geographical regions of the world. It's not that we're looking for new allies to join the Alliance from areas outside the Euro-Atlantic. 
more that we recognize that these challenges and threats are coming toward the Euro-Atlantic region from around the world. So we need to prepare for that. Yeah, I think the Australian Prime Minister who spoke at the NATO Public Forum, I think, put it uh, very succinctly when he noted that Australia has an interest in what happens in Europe, and he expects Europeans to would also have an interest in what happens in Asia. I, I want to also pick up on another one of uh, the UK's priorities that you you mentioned, that accelerating the technological transformation, where you know uh, militaries around the world are looking what's ha- uh, what's happening in Ukraine, the use of UAVs, and I think it may have been a little bit lost at some of the outcomes and achievements at the NATO summit on this effort to uh, make NATO really focused on, on advanced technology and the kind of the challenges of the, the 21st century. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you saw coming out of the NATO summit and in NATO all, over the last few years when it comes to really accelerating the, the technological transformation. Yeah, this is very important for us. And I think one of the successes of Madrid was that it was able to do both the big strategic picture that we captured in the concept, but it also took a lot of operational decisions as well. And not many summits, I think, can do that balance of strategic and operational as well as uh, Madrid did. And as you say, this is not something that just began at Madrid. This is a process that's been going on uh, for some years, but has definitely accelerated recently. And I agree with you that some of it got lost in the headlines, uh, particularly focused on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But what we saw at Madrid was, for example, agreement on the new innovation fund, uh, which will really help the alliance bring sort of technology uh, into NATO, uh, agreement on what we call the digital backbone uh, for NATO. We've had the agreement on Diana, as it's called, the, the tech accelerator, basically which will help startups engage with NATO and help bring radical and disruptive technology, we hope, uh, to NATO. And also discussion at NATO around the the new domains, as we call them, around both cyberspace and uh, space. So I think all of that set a really uh, ambitious agenda for NATO sort of moving forward. And I think it was important in the context of Russia, Ukraine, that we didn't look just at the land domain. We didn't look just at the traditional areas of conflict, but that we also have broadened out to these new areas as well. And I, I want to turn to sort of focus on Ukraine and in, in our support for our Eastern partners in uh, in NATO in a second. But this is a podcast sort of devoted to, to, to NATO. And as an ambassador that was at the summit, I was wondering if you could maybe maybe give us a look behind the curtain of what it's actually like to attend a summit like this. Uh, what was your day like? How, how hectic was it? Did you eat lunch? You know, what, what was happening behind the scenes at the NATO summit? I mean, summits are are very strange experiences, generally, because on the one hand, you feel you're at the centre of world attention. On the other hand, you're often quite cut off from what's going on out there in the world. And we were in Madrid, a beautiful city, one of my favourite places in the world. But all you see of Madrid is what's rushing past in the convoy as you're heading toward the, the summit venue. I think somebody counted up that on the middle day, you know, the, the, the full day of the summit, there were 104 interventions by leaders and foreign ministers in the main North Atlantic Council room. One of my team asked me which which were the highlights of the 104, and at the 11 o'clock that night, it was quite hard to distinguish between some of them along the way. And, and generally at summits, you eat too much and you don't drink enough water is the sort of typical uh, thing for, for summits. You can tell a good summit when you're there because if you've got all the documentation agreed a week in advance, they probably haven't been ambitious enough 
If it's all been too easy to agree, that's no good. If your prime minister leaves for the airport on the last day and you still haven't agreed, then you've probably gone too far in the opposite direction. And I think at Madrid, we got it just about right. But the, the single most powerful moment at Madrid was on the evening of the first day when we were all assembling for the, for the welcome dinners. And news came through just at that moment that the deal had been done on Finland and Sweden. The agreement had been reached in that trilateral uh, mechanism. And you could feel this kind of wave of emotion go through the room, which you don't often get at summits, because this everybody recognised this for the historic moment that it was. And I'd said to colleagues in London before the summit that we were on course for a, for a good outcome, a really good outcome, but that if we got the deal on uh, Sweden and Finland, then we could have a great outcome. People knew in that moment that the summit was going to be a success from there. It was, it was really palpable. I don't think I've ever felt something like that at the summit. Yeah, I was on the, the at the the NATO public forum, so on the the public side. And let me first just echo what you said. It, it felt my reaction in leaving the the Madrid was that well, there was a lot of summit, not enough Madrid. Good reason to go back. But the the Sweden Finland announcement was at least from my perspective not expected. Uh, I think when when leaders arrived uh, in Madrid, the expectations I think were pretty low. At least in Washington, the the prep meetings and calls that the White House was giving out were. We're trying to really dampen expectations that there'd be a breakthrough, but the, the the breakthrough I think was incredibly significant. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about what you think Sweden and Finland bring to the alliance and and why this is such a significant moment, not just for Sweden and Finland, but for NATO itself. I Sweden and Finland are already uh, NATO's closest partners, and we have exercised with them, we have trained with them over the years. They bring uh, real high-end capabilities on both land, sea, and air, uh, and increasingly in the new domains as well. We know how capable they are, and we know that they will be a significant net contribution to both NATO and also to the Euro-Atlantic, you know, the security of the Euro-Atlantic region uh, more generally. So it's fantastically welcome news for, for us. We've got to get to all the ratifications. I'm confident that that will happen uh, over the coming uh, weeks and months, but it will be a very significant uh, moment when that process is completed. But frankly, we're already doing lots of the work with them uh, now. We as UK uh, made our contribution to the process by giving the bilateral security guarantees when our prime minister visited the two countries in May. We've had uh, fast jets up there training with and exercising with both the Swedes and the Finns in, in the last few weeks. So a lot of that work is already happening now and we can see the value that they will bring uh, to the Alliance. But in my previous job, when I was the Deputy National Security Advisor in London, I, I was there when Boris Johnson uh, told Putin that if he went into Ukraine, there would be crippling economic sanctions, uh, there would be a NATO that was more united than ever, and there would be even more NATO on Russia's borders than there was then. And that's what we've seen. Uh, that's the consequence uh, of what Putin has taken his country into uh, with Ukraine. So it's fantastically welcome. Uh, there will be Sweden and Finland will make a really impressive contribution, I think, to NATO and indeed to Euro-Atlantic security more generally. 
And the uh, accession journey of both Sweden and Finland is is sort of marching along. But do you expect any sort of uh, bumps in the road ahead? Do you see any future potential problems, at least with with Turkey, uh, when it comes to Sweden and Finland accession? I know that they've sort of jump started the process. Turkey uh, agreed at the summit to to not object, but um, but they have another bite at the apple, so to speak. So do you see any any challenges uh, in the ascension process ahead? I'm confident it will happen in the coming weeks and months. I I wouldn't put a timeline on it right now because it's up to national parliaments and events can always get in the way uh, with, with parliaments. We don't know what will happen in the domestic politics of all the countries that have still got to, to ratify. But here at NATO, there is enormous positive momentum uh, toward completion of the process. Uh, there is the discussion going on within that trilateral process say I don't know exactly when it will happen, but I'm, I'm I'm very confident it will happen in the coming weeks and months. Great. And I also wanted to ask you if uh, how you think Sweden and Finland will impact um, the UK-led Joint Expeditionary Force in in the broader security architecture uh, of Europe. What role will will them being part of NATO? How will that impact uh, uh, things going forward? I'm not sure how much difference their membership of NATO will make to the wider uh, European uh, security structures at the moment. I think we'll see that unfolding over over time. We really welcome our partnership with Sweden and Finland, both bilaterally and through the Joint Expeditionary Force. That allows us to do different kinds of training and exercises with them to plan for different scenarios. It's all designed to be uh, complementary to, to NATO. So I don't think the fact that Sweden and Finland will be joining, are joining NATO, will significantly uh, change that. But I think they will probably see some ramifications over time, but I don't think there will be any significant immediate changes. I want to pivot now to Ukraine. You know, I think the, the first priority that you mentioned for the United Kingdom uh, was that NATO come out of the summit a stronger and have a, a very robust alliance that was demonstrating to the world that it stood uh, unified in response to Russia's aggression in Ukraine. And I, I think that really came across. I'm curious what your reaction was to uh NATO allies at the summit? Was there a lot of, uh, Ukraine was obviously the major focus, but there was a lot of concern that, you know, some NATO countries, NATO in the South would want to focus more on the South or other parts of, uh, have other security challenges that weren't necessarily devoted to to the East. How, how, uh, how, what is your assessment of, of NATO alliance unity coming out of the Madrid summit? Uh, I was really impressed by the level of unity uh, and just the, the resolve to stand by Ukraine and to continue strengthening the alliance. There'd been some concern before Madrid, you know, would we see Ukraine fatigue, so-called, coming through at Madrid, or would we see divisions between some who wanted to focus more on the south versus uh, the east? In fact, I think what we saw was really strong commitment to stay the course in supporting Ukraine, real determination to strengthen NATO's own uh, deterrence and defence, but also to continue focusing 360, uh, looking at threats from the south and, say, from the Middle East and elsewhere, and to continue looking at counterterrorism as one of the the, the key preoccupations for, for the alliance. So that, again, I think was an element of success at Madrid that while having a very strong focus on Ukraine, it wasn't at the expense of other areas of really important allied business. Because as we know, in this increasingly complex world, you can't separate 
each of those challenges. They are all often interconnected and the Alliance needs to be able to deal with all of them uh, at the same time. Much of this work obviously did not start in uh, you know, on the 24th of February this year with Putin's invasion. Much work on uh, adaptation began or at least accelerated after the 2014 uh, invasion. And I think there are sort of three big things in terms of strengthening defence and deterrence that uh, are underway at the moment, three big processes. One of which is about sort of resetting the baseline on the eastern flank and all the steps that have been taken since the 24th of February, doubling the number of battle groups, increasing the air policing, maritime exercising and reinforcement of the maritime presence. All of that has happened and will continue to, to happen. There was agreement at Madrid on further strengthening the Eastern flank. You've got the second big bit around NATO working through all of its plans for all of the geographies and all of the domains. So looking at all of the relevant areas and what we would do in land, at sea, in the air. And then thirdly, all the work on the new force model, which really is a revolution in how uh, NATO understands the forces that are available to it and marshals those in the most effective way, you know, at the highest possible level of readiness. And that's a really big programme of work. That's probably the biggest programme of work since the end of the Cold War. Well, not probably, it is the biggest programme of work in terms of reshaping defence and deterrence uh, since the end of the Cold War. And that came through, I think, very powerfully uh, at Madrid. And that, that shows NATO being really effective from remaining the bedrock of Euro-Atlantic security. The UK has been a, a, a leader in providing uh, equipment and support to Ukraine. Was that a major topic at the NATO summit in, in how the NATO alliance, NATO alliance members were going to continue to provide material support to Ukraine going forward? And do you see this being a major priority for the alliance uh, in, in kind of the months ahead? So the, the first thing that we saw uh, at Madrid was rock solid political commitment and resolve to stand behind Ukraine and to stay the course. But we also agreed some important practical outcomes as well, including the new comprehensive assistance package. President Zelensky gave a very powerful address to the opening session of, of the summit. It called for more practical help uh, from the Alliance. And what the comprehensive assistance package will do is provide some short term non-lethal support but most importantly, uh, to my mind, it will uh, allow the Alliance to put together a package of longer term support aimed at helping Ukraine get to NATO standards of defence. Because in the long run, the most effective uh, defence against Russian aggression that Ukraine can have is its own capability. So this programme of work will uh, start following the summit. We're already talking to the international staff here now about how to implement that. I think that is a very strong signal, both about development of Ukraine's own capabilities and its potential interoperability with NATO. All of that will sit alongside the very substantial programs of assistance that we, the UK, the US and other allies are providing, which are coordinated through the, the, the Ramstein process. Great. I want to turn to the strategic concept. Maybe you could sort of Give us your take in the UK's perspective on what, how significant is this new strategic concept? What does it say? And do you think this will really, how does this sort of chart out the, the next 10 years for NATO? And, and where do you, where do you sort of see NATO going over the, over the next 10 years based off the strategic concept? Yeah, we are very pleased with the outcome uh, from Madrid in terms of the strategic concept, because it is genuinely strategic. It steps back and it takes a look at the world as it is now and as the world is likely to be over the next 10 to 15 years. 
it's a more strategically competitive world. It's a more contested international environment. It's a world where unfortunately, like, where we are likely to see more uh, instability over time and where there are new and growing challenges, which were not reflected in the 2010 version. And the contrast between that 2010 version and the 2022 version is really pretty stark, both in terms of how Russia is treated. You know, in 2010, there was still an aspiration to partnership with Russia, which Russia's own actions have made you know, completely impossible uh, in the current context. But also the new concept recognizes the reality that China will increasingly uh, pose a challenge to the, the alliance's security interests uh, and values. It's a 360 document in NATO terms, which means it looks at the totality of possible uh, challenges to the alliance. So there is still a very strong focus on uh, counterterrorism, for example, and also other challenges from instability, illegal migration, and other possible uh, threats and challenges. So I think it really meets the test of setting the alliance a clear political and strategic direction for the next decade or so in what is a radically different strategic environment compared to the 2010 version. You mentioned China, and China is not mentioned in the 2010 version. Uh, and there's quite strong language in this in this strategic concept about China. What role do you see NATO having in the Indo-Pacific in addressing some of the challenges posed by China? What what sort of position and posture do you expect NATO to to adopt over over the coming years? I mean, it's really remarkable to think now that the first reference to China in a NATO document was in 2019 uh, from the London uh, leaders meeting. So it was very important that the strategic concept properly dealt with uh, China. And I see NATO having uh, at least three roles in partnership with the AP4, who I mentioned earlier, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Republic of Korea, and indeed other partners uh, around the world. I think, first of all, it's about deepening understanding of what the challenges are. Uh, the strategic concept uh, refers, for example, to the development of China's uh, nuclear weapons capability. We've also had discussion here recently uh, about maritime security and possible threats and challenges uh, in that domain. And I think there's a lot more that the Alliance can do in talking to itself and to partners around the world about understanding the evolution of those threats and challenges. The second thing I think we can do uh, here at NATO is to help ourselves prepare better for those challenges. And resilience was another one of the big themes uh, of the Madrid summit and how we prepare all of our societies, our governments, our economies to deal with new and emerging challenges, including from cyber, from uh, sub-threshold conflict, for all kinds of new uh, and emerging uh, challenges. Much of that will be, most of that will be for national authorities to do, but there's a lot of work that we can do together to coordinate our responses and to make our societies more resilient. And then I think the third area where uh, NATO has a role to play is through uh, support, both to the international rules-based order and to uh, partner countries uh, around the world. We recognize that, that, you know, that China poses a challenge to the international order, which has served the world, we think, very well for the last 70 years. And so we have a collective interest here at the Alliance in doing more to bolster the rules-based international order, but also to help those countries who may be vulnerable to uh, Chinese pressure or to Chinese uh, interests around the world as they develop their own resilience and as they prepare for, for a more challenging future. 
I want to ask you about one of the the major deliverables from the NATO summit, which was the announcement that NATO would have a new force model, uh, which would increase NATO's high readiness forces from 40,000 to 300,000. Do you think this is going to be achievable, doable in the next few years, or is this sort of a new ambition that the United States and others are going to be pressing uh, European countries to, to to meet, sort of the new 2%, so to speak? Uh, do you think this is an achievable goal for, for NATO? Yeah, I, I do. And I think the new force model is very important because it's a different way of NATO understanding what forces are available to it and organizing those forces. Uh, there's been a lot a focus on the 300,000 number at Madrid and subsequently. But I think that is indicative. You know, the most important thing is the substance uh, of the new force model. And uh, you know, the 300,000 figure gives us a way of understanding that, but is not the most important thing about the new model. What I take the new model uh, to do is it gives Secure a way of understanding what forces are available to him, with what kinds of capabilities, in what kinds of locations, at what levels of readiness, and with what kind of preparedness for the kinds of challenges that we may face in the years to come. And it will give Secure a much more comprehensive picture uh, of those forces. And the 300,000 figure, we've got three tiers of possible readiness, one to 10 days, 10 to 30 days, then 30 days plus. The 300,000 figure is an indicative figure for the top two categories. So zero to 10 and, and 10 to 30 days. And we're confident that that can be achieved. But all of this is a process that will take time. So we have these three big processes underway as, at the moment, as I mentioned, resetting the baseline on the Eastern flank, working through all the plans across uh, geographies and domains and the new force model. And that combination will give uh, NATO, I think, enhanced deterrence and defense in a way that it has not had since the end of uh, the Cold War. But it will take time. It's not going to be an event. This will be a process. And these things will both inter there'll be interplay between them, and they will take time to come together. But the 300,000 is an indication of the kinds of forces that will be available through a combination of national forces, from those, for example, on the, the eastern flank, uh, other forces from countries like the UK uh, who would have deployed uh, in place, but also those that would be at very high readiness uh, back in the UK, the US and elsewhere that could deploy quickly to support in the event of uh, a possible emerging crisis. So I'm confident it can be delivered, but this is a process that will take time as we work through these, uh, th these new models. Well, Ambassador, and my last question, uh, I want to ask about UK's policy stance going forward toward Ukraine, toward NATO. Uh, obviously, this is a moment of political transition uh, within the United Kingdom. Uh, there's will be a new prime minister. Do you see any potential shifts in 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 UK policy toward Ukraine, toward NATO, toward Russia, uh, uh, given what may happen with with the uh, with the selection of a, of a new prime minister? Obviously, there'll be big decisions for a new prime minister to take. They'll be taking office at a time of quite a lot of turmoil in the uh, international scene, including, of course, the horrific conflict in Ukraine. But the thing that strikes me is the depth and the breadth of support in the UK for what we are doing in terms of our leading role in uh, providing both lethal and non-lethal support to Ukraine and putting pressure on Russia through sanctions and other means. It feels to me that there is a very broad consensus 
uh, in the UK in favour of that approach. So there might be some shifts of emphasis, possibly, that'll be for a new set of ministers to decide. But personally, I would be surprised if there was a significant shift, because I think people in the UK recognise this for what it is. It's the most fundamental challenge to Euro-Atlantic security that we have seen in my lifetime. It's a fundamental challenge to values and principles that we hold very dear. So some adjustment possibly, but I would be surprised if there was to be a major strategic shift. Ambassador Corey, thank you so much for, for joining us. This was a, a really enlightening discussion. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you to Ambassador Corey for joining us and our listeners for tuning in. Thank you also to the team at CSIS, my colleague Colin Wall, our lead researcher and project manager, and our editor, Alana Nevins. If you like what you heard, please check out our page on the CSIS website, subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice, and leave us a rating and review. See you next time.